Hello, it's time to read the Des Moines Register for Monday, November 13th. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. My name is Rachel Mithelman, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Nicole Tam. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of IRIS going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Now let's take a look at the weather and headlines from today's Des Moines Register. It's going to be a beautiful week, unseasonably warm, highs in the 60s until Friday, and lows in the 40s until Friday, and then it cools off a bit. Looking at headlines on the front page, big change in mayor's office, little in council about the election of a new mayor in Des Moines. Wolves, that is the Iowa Wolves, job keeps legacy growing. And what are all those new black traffic cameras in the Des Moines metro? Here is Nicole with our first story. All right, and this story is about uh, the mayor-elect here in Des Moines. It is quite long, so Rachel will switch off at some point for the story. Big change in mayor's office, little in the council. There is a large image of Des Moines mayor-elect Connie Bolzen standing for her portrait in the East Village. In addition to reaching out to the community, Bozen plans to spend her first 100 days in office fostering economic development. This is written by Virginia Beretta of the Des Moines Register. The November 7th city election marked a historic moment when voters elected Des Moines' first woman mayor. But as for the rest of the city council, it wasn't the shakeup some may have expected. Turnout for the 2023 election in Polk County trended higher than the last cycle back in 2021, and also the race between Connie Bozen, who's 72, and competitor Josh Mandelbaum, 44, was close, with 723 votes separating the two. That's according to unofficial results. She'll be the city's first new mayor in 20 years after Mayor Frank County did not seek re-election. The 180-degree flip that could have altered the competition of about half of the council never materialized. Multiple candidates tried in vain to unseat multi-term incumbents for the at-large Ward 2 and Ward 4 seats, leaving the three incumbents to reprise their roles. And of the seven candidates who appeared on the ballot for a special election in Ward 1, voters want the person went with the person who previously sat on the council for more than two decades. So let's take a look at where the mayoral candidates garnered support, how the council is shaping up in 2024, and what mayor-elect Bozen has planned for her first 100 days in office. Where did the support for Bozen and Mandelbaum come from? In the mayoral race, Bozen and Mandelbaum won across all 73 precincts over opponents Denver Foote and Chris W. Von Arks. Bozen earned 48% of the votes, Mandelbaum 46%, Foote 3%, and Von Arks 2%. That's also according to unofficial results. Mandelbaum captured support largely from the central and northwest portions of the city, while Bozen won the east and south sides. That's according to an election analysis by the Des Moines Register. 
Mandelbaum, whose Ward Three encompasses downtown as well as the southwest portion of the city, was most popular in the northern half of his ward. His support came mainly from the downtown core and the East Village, as well as the densely populated neighborhoods in Ward One. That's Woodland Heights, Drake, Riverbend, and Waveland Park. Bozen drew the vast majority of her support from the areas south of the confluence of the Raccoon and Des Moines rivers, as well as most precincts east of East 14th Street. So, what will the Des Moines City Council look like in 2024? The short answer: much like it does now. Three council members who ran for re-election this year will retain their seats: at-large council member Carl Voss, Ward Two Representative Linda Westergaard, and Ward Four Representative Joe Gatto. Mandelbaum will keep his seat as Ward Three Representative. Chris Coleman, who previously served as an at-large council member for 21 years after winning a special election in 1998, will return to the council table as the Ward One representative. He'll fill the remainder of the term of Indira Shoemaker, who resigned in October after a six-month absence. An at-large seat will become open once Bozen takes over as mayor in January. And to Bozen, the largely unchanged council makeup signifies community members. She says, "I think that's why a Chris Coleman won. They went through some pretty tough times with not having somebody that showed up and was present. Somebody told me it was such easier to get elected than to govern, and I think that they saw you had people that care about the community and want to stick to those local issues." Mandelbaum said it's hard to draw clear conclusions from the race, but did say that council candidates running as incumbents enjoyed significant advantages, especially when it comes to fundraising. He says if you look at the amount of money that the incumbents had and where some of that came from, it's hard to overcome for folks. So, what does Mayor-elect Connie Bozen want to accomplish in the first 100 days? Bozen's upcoming tenure will be all about being present and out there, she told the Register. In the first several months, Bozen said she plans to schedule meetings with city council members and city staff to understand our objectives and needs. Bozen says a critical piece will be the community outreach, and much of that could come from what she calls mayor's listening sessions. She said, "We're going to go out to where they're at, whether it's just a mayor forum or if the council wants to come. But going into communities where the people are and not waiting for them to come to the library or come to the Northwest Community Center. This type of outreach extends beyond the traditional neighborhood associations," she adds, "and is meant to include community members who aren't always heard, such as immigrants or those with language barriers." She hopes that the outreach will also include people who can't easily attend council meetings on a regular basis. She said, "I think it's important for me to get out. I've been empathetic about being part of the community, and I want to show up and be present." Bozen hopes to put open forums and dialogues into practice when the council begins to discuss next year's budget, as well as find other creative ways to get community members involved in the process. Bozen aims to find a better budget process that gets more true community input. We've got to figure out how to get people more engaged. She also said we need to create that sense of community because community brings strength and it also brings a safety factor, and people become more informed about what's out there. 
She also wants to encourage the city to hire two staff members to help bolster economic development. One would recruit developers and business owners, small and large, to Des Moines. Another would guide new business owners through the licensing and zoning process to help them open quickly and efficiently. She says, and she also wants to have meetings with Polk County and Iowa leaders, as well as other mayors from across the state, to discuss collaboration and projects such as opportunities for affordable housing. She said, "How do we bridge the conversation and have better dialogue with everyone?" And that's what I'll be working on in the first 100 days. So, what's next for Josh Mandelbaum? In an emotional concession speech at his election party at Mars Cafe on Tuesday night, Mandelbaum thanked his family, saying that they motivate him to get through tough days. He heartily thanked his campaign team and supporters, encouraged. Encouraging them to stay and fight for a better community, he said, "I got in this campaign because I believe we need to create a community that works better for everyone and provides opportunity. I still believe that with all my heart." Mandelbaum told the Register on Tuesday that in the months ahead, he will take time to figure out the next steps, pointing to the challenges of balancing family life, the city council, and a full-time career. Mandelbaum works as an environmental attorney at a nonprofit focused on clean energy, climate, and clean water issues. He said, "This is tough, right? And I'm going to take some time. I mean, you miss things that other people don't as a consequence of it. And I've got to have conversations with my family about what's next. But I'm not in any rush to make those decisions. I'm going to just take some time, spend time with my family." And what the future will come. In a conversation with the Register on Friday, he added the council will have to have upcoming discussions over issues such as the future of the Des Moines Area Regional Transit Authority, which is facing a potential 40% reduction in service levels in Des Moines due to a budget shortfall. What's next for candidate Denver Foot? In an open letter to the community published Wednesday evening, Foot thanked her campaign supporters. They also thanked candidates who ran progressive city campaigns before them and contemporaneously, pointing to Chelsea Lepley, who ran against Westergaard in Ward Two, and Jason Benell, who challenged Gatto in Ward Four. Foot said, "We need more people like this in our community." More people willing to run real grassroots campaigns and fight like hell for their community. Foot said they ran to protect and to be a voice for the most underserved communities, including individuals experiencing homelessness and living in poverty, the LGBTQ community, and families met with racism and harm by police. Looking ahead, Foot said they have no plans to let up on that mission. She said, "I have." They said, "I have no plans of accepting defeat or moving aside after the results of this election. I will continue to fight for my community and show up however I can to serve our collective needs. I hope, if you're reading this, that you will show up alongside me. The fight to abolish systems of oppression is multifaceted, and there are so many different ways to get involved." For his part. Von Arks was largely absent from the race. How do Bozen and Mandelbaum plan to cooperate? Collaborate, sorry. Throughout a months-long campaign, 
at times contentious. Bozen and Mandelbaum have maintained their more than willing to work together, despite the outcome of the race. During his concession speech, Mandelbaum said the city is in good hands with Bozen, adding that he looks forward to working with her. I pledge, he said, to work with her and to do everything I can to make her successful and to make our city successful. Mandelbaum told the register he hopes issues like housing are prioritized and that elected officials live up to commitments made during the campaign. He pointed to a news release from the Bozen campaign in mid-October that said Bozen would do everything in her power to protect reproductive freedom. The two candidates, who took similar stances throughout the race on core issues like affordable housing, city growth, and public safety, were most notably separated over whether state issues have a place in city politics. The rift over reproductive freedom became the most contentious issue of the race. Mandelbaum had preemptively drafted a resolution in 2022 to safeguard access to abortion for Des Moines residents, which was rejected by fellow council members, including Bozen. He said during the campaign that he was the only candidate for mayor who has stood up for reproductive freedom. Bozen and Foote disputed that characterization. Mandelbaum said, I hope that means that she's planning on revisiting and looking at the four steps that I identified because all of those are within our power today. Provisions, including committing the city to providing its employees continued access to reproductive health care and prohibiting, other than where required by federal or state law, the use of city funds to store or catalog information about abortions, miscarriages, or reproductive health services. He pointed to a statement from Planned Parenthood Advocates of Iowa, which said the city could implement what he proposed. Bozen says at the end of the day, quote, campaigns are campaigns, end quote, and the council needs to focus on what's best for residents moving forward. What happens to Bozen's former at-large seat? With the newly vacant at-large seat, the city council will have to decide whether to appoint someone or call a special election to fill the vacancy, according to Polk County Auditor Jamie Fitzgerald. A bit about this article, Des Moines Register reporter Courtney Crowder contributed to it and written by Virginia Beretta, who is the Des Moines Register government reporter. A quick break from our print edition to some breaking news from overnight in their digital edition. It is a two-vehicle crash that involved a teen that killed two elderly residents on Sunday. This is written by Noel Alves Grancy of the Des Moines Register. Uh, a two-vehicle crash that involves a Camaro near the Iowa State Fairgrounds killed two elderly residents on Sunday. First responders were called to East 27th Street and East University Avenue around 8 last night to report multiple reports of a crash. A 76-year-old man and a 79-year-old woman who were in the same car were killed at the scene. Police believe that a 1999 Buick Century, which the two elderly residents were in, was turning north on East 27th Street from East University Avenue when it was struck by the passenger side by that 2011 Camaro. The Camaro that's driven by an 18-year-old was traveling westbound on East University Avenue at the time of the collision. The Buick hit a utility pole before flipping over.
Witnesses and evidence point to the Camaro traveling at a quote high rate of speed, according to police. These are the 15th and 16th traffic-related fatalities in Des Moines this year, and Des Moines police continue to investigate this crash. Thank you, Nicole. Wolf's job keeps legacy growing. The team exec gives back in daughter's remembrance. This is an article by Tommy Birch of the Register. Iowa Wolves President of Business Operations Drew Van Meteren sits in his office on a November morning, reaches into his backpack, pulls out a keychain, and slides it across his desk. Desk attached to it is a white and blue butterfly charm. It just makes me smile, Drew Van Meteren says as he looks at it. The butterfly is the way Van Meteren honors his daughter, Jess, who was just five years old when she died in 2008. Butterflies were among her favorite things. Van Meteren can't stop smiling as he proudly shows it off. It's like giving her a hug when she's not here, he said. Jess is really far, rarely far from his mind. <clears throat> she is a big reason why Van Meteren is where he is today, preparing for his first season leading the Wolves, the NBA G League affiliate of the Minnesota Timberwolves. Jess's life inspired Meteren to find ways to help others. This job is another chance. The personal life experience has led him into the arena of giving back, said Tori Gain, vice president of tournament business at the PGA Tour and Van Meteren's former colleague. Van Meteren and his wife, Leah Churchman, <clears throat> excuse me, have wanted to give back after getting so much help early on as parents. <clears throat> Just four and a half months after having twins, Cade and Jess, their daughter was diagnosed with pneumococcal meningitis, an infection that causes pressure around the brain, sometimes leading to strokes and brain damage. The strain was aggressive and attacked the soft tissues of her brain. It nearly killed her at the time of the diagnosis. <clears throat> Jess survived, but the prognosis was not good. The couple was told, <clears throat> I'm very sorry, <clears throat> The couple was told Jess might never leave the hospital. They were also told Jess wouldn't be able to eat, breathe, or walk on her own. Doctors put a stent to help with the drainage around her brain. They gave her a tube to help with feeding and performed a tracheotomy because she had to be intubated so many times. Jess spent nearly 11 weeks at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines. The nurses, doctors, and support staff not only took care of her, but also cared for Churchman, Van Meteren, and Cade. The hospital and all the people there had a giant impact on their lives. Van Meteren said, an absolute hidden gem. When they came home, Jess had a suitcase full of medicines that needed to be administered to her daily. Van Meteren and Churchman didn't know how much time they might have with Jess. It could have been six days or six years, so they treated every day like it was her last, going on vacations to Wisconsin and California and venturing to the beach and water parks. It was very important to us to try to do what we could call normal, as normal of things as possible with her, Churchman said. The family got plenty of help as well. 
Jess had speech and physical therapy. With the help of the pediatric therapy department at Blank, her parents got her a device that enabled them to communicate with her. They recorded messages and options that Jess could hit buttons for as responses. Through the device, they learned about Jess's love for butterflies, which decorated her room and her sense of humor. She once jokingly suggested they get a pink bathrobe for Cade for Christmas. Van Meteren said, The work that they do is absolutely amazing. And through the workings of them and the devices and things that they were able to present in front of us, we were able to essentially communicate with Jess that we wouldn't have otherwise. Jess died on January 25, 2008, of complications from meningitis. Her family wanted to make sure her legacy lived on. They did it the best way they knew how, by helping others. They created the Butterfly Fund at blank. The goal is to help families with special needs kids purchase equipment they needed. Van Meteren and Churchman understood how important things like that were as a result of the communication device they used with Jess. They also knew that some families don't have insurance and can't afford to pay for such accommodations. So Van Meteren, who grew up in a golfing family in Sheldon, started a charity tournament to be the primary fundraiser for the fund. The tournament helped raise money, and Churchman believes it helped her husband through the grieving process. He really poured himself into that, she said. It became a quick success, raising money and awareness. Van Van Meteren received letters, drawings, and thank you notes from kids and their families. He was overwhelmed by the generosity and touched by the impact they were having. He said, at one point, we were nine years into it and we raised a quarter of a million dollars. It was literally the most satisfying thing I've ever done in my life. Van Meteren was working in the corporate world at the time. After seeing firsthand how people were impacted by his charitable work, he wanted to focus his attention on finding other ways to do good. In 2017, he was one of four individuals chosen for the Executive Director Initiative on the PGA Tour. Van Meteren had a passion for the game and liked the work the tour had done giving back and making an impact in communities. He wanted to do the same. So Van Meteren moved to Kansas City and ran the Advent Health Championship, an event on the Corn Ferry Tour. It provided him that chance to give back. Each year featured a theme. One year was mental health awareness. Organizers also did a Birdies for Charity program. It was taking, it literally was taking what Jess provided us in terms of the opportunity to make a difference through blank and the pediatric therapy department, then to a whole other level in another city and impacting other other lives through that, while at the same time we kept the Butterfly Fund in existence, he said. Van Meteren believes fate brought him back to central Iowa. He wanted to return to the area when his mother-in-law fell ill and needed some help. The Wolves had an opening when previous president Ryan Grant departed for another job. Van Meteren thought the team would give him another platform to do some good. He wants purpose in life, Gaines said. 
Van Meteren has it, with many of the team's initiatives and plans for the 23-24 season already solidified. He's focusing on getting out in the community. He wants people to learn about the wolves and about him so they can see where he's coming from and what type of impact they can have on people around town. And he already has his eye on next season. That's when he hopes to get the wolves more involved with the community and causes. We're a big part of the community, he said, and he aims to help ensure that what we are doing is giving back to the community and making a difference in this. That's what Jess would want. That may be the best way Van Meteren honors and remembers his daughter. He said, you have a platform and you have a responsibility as a leader in those platforms to think beyond the golf course or the basketball court. This was written by Tommy Birch, the Register's Sports, Enterprise, and Features reporter. And the final story on the front page of the Des Moines Register today, what are all those new black traffic cameras in the Des Moines Metro? License plate readers called Tool to help police. This is written by Victoria Reina Rodriguez from the Des Moines Register. Have you noticed the black solar-powered cameras along the streets in your community? Flock traffic cameras have been popping up all over the Des Moines metro. Here's a look at what you should know about those cameras, which capture license plate data from passing cars. Flock is the brand name for a license plate reading camera and software being marketed to law enforcement, businesses, homeowners associations, and also school districts. Flox cameras record rear images and license plate data from vehicles with license plate recognition technology. The camera system can run real-time inquiries with the National Crime Information Center. That's according to a City of Urbandale Council letter. Holly Pickett, community relations officer at the Urbandale Police Department, previously told the Register that the NCIC database houses information about major crimes such as stolen vehicles, missing persons, and Amber Alerts. This system maintains data of all the vehicle and license plate information that's recorded for 30 days. The city of Urbandale assured citizens in the council... Oh, in a city council letter, sorry, that word was separated. She says that the flock does not sell any of the information obtained by its cameras to third parties and the data is only accessible by law enforcement agencies. Which cities in Des Moines Metro use those flock cameras? Altoona, Ankeny, Clive, Urbandale, Waukee, and West Des Moines are among the more than 1,500 cities in 42 states that's already using the flock cameras. How have flock cameras helped Urbandale police? Over the last year in Urbandale, flock cameras have resulted in 59 warrant arrests, the recovery of 14 stolen vehicles, the recovery of one missing juvenile, and assistance in investigating 61 cases. Pickett said that flock cameras are not a replacement for police officers, but it is an extra tool. She says an officer still has to see that vehicle, they have to confirm it is that vehicle, run the plates themselves, so they still have to go through that process just like they would at a regular traffic stop. But besides just license plates, flock cameras can capture and organize vehicles based on color, make, model, and whether that vehicle has any damage or alterations. 
What can't flock cameras record? According to Flock's website, the camera's motion detection works up to 75 feet, with a field of view of about 20 foot wide distance. For nighttime photos, the cameras use infrared technology that can only capture reflective surfaces. The cameras do not have the capability to track speed or record other traffic violations like running a stop sign. So, where are the flock cameras in Westmoreland and Urbandale? Westmoreland and Urbandale have released a list of these flock camera locations within their cities. In Westmoreland, flock cameras are densely located near Jordan Creek Town Center and the West Glen Town Center. They are also installed at a few city parks. Most of Urbandale's flock cameras are located along its major east-west streets, so that's Meredith Drive, Douglas Avenue, and Hickman Road. Moving to the headlines of Metro in Iowa, Regents to Mull Capital Projects, Board considering $27.5 million renovation of the Iowa Baseball Stadium. This is by Ryan Hansen of the Iowa City Press Citizen. The State Board of Regents will consider approval of several capital improvement projects at its November 15 and 16 meeting. Including a $27.4 million facelift of the University of Iowa baseball stadium, a $66.5 million veterinary diagnostic lab at Iowa State University, and a $13.5 million renovation and expansion of the University of Iowa Hospital and Clinic's burn treatment center. The regents could approve projects approaching a total of nearly $200 million at the state's three biggest public universities, including several million dollars for routine renovations and operational expansions. The regents will meet in the Slife Ballroom in the University of Northern Iowa's Commons Building next Tuesday and Wednesday in Cedar Falls. The home of the University of Iowa's baseball team since 1975. Is in need of an update and pending region approval. The renovation could be rather impressive. <clears throat> Proposals before the regions next week include a major expansion to the stadium's size, the result of expansions to the seating bowl, press box, and restrooms, and expansion of the entrance. Renovation to the stadium's seating would add about 400 new seats, expanding the stadium's capacity to 2,492. The $27.4 million project would be funded by gifts and earnings of the athletic department. The Hawkeyes are coming off the school's first Big Ten championship, and have made the postseason in each of the last seven years under the tutelage of head coach Rick Heller. This. Is monumental for our program. Getting this opportunity to completely renovate Duane Banks Field, Heller said in a statement on November seventh. He continued, "These upgrades will give our program not only one of the best facilities in the Big Ten, but in the country." I would like to thank all of our donors who have made this possible, and those that continue to support us through the process. The University of Iowa considered completely replacing the stadium, but ultimately concluded that the construction of a brand new stadium would cost far more than renovations. Iowa is 143 to 13 at Duane Banks Field since 2015. Renovations would begin after this coming collegiate baseball season. 
Phase two of Iowa State University's Veterinary Diagnostic Lab is also up for regent approval next week. The university's $66.5 million project would help to co-locate all functions of the lab under one roof, ISU's report to the regent said. The first phase of the project, a $75 million, 100,000-square-foot project, is set to complete in early 2024. Only 20% of the College of Veterinary Medicine's operations were included in that first phase. This project would create a 78,500-square-foot addition to Phase 1 and would integrate analytical chemistry, bioinformatics, molecular diagnostics, sequencing, college administrators and IT personnel, and more. The university said in its report that the Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory aligns with and advances the state's $32.5 billion animal agriculture industry by being a national leader in diagnostic services and instruction and research. Nearly all of the project would be funded by state and local fiscal recovery funds, a $40 million contribution, and state appropriations dollars, an $18 million contribution. Private donors and Iowa State University funds would contribute the final $8.5 million. Construction would begin in the summer of 2024, and ISU projects the project would be complete by the fall of 2026. Finally, the state's only verified burn treatment center will get a new and expanded look for $13 million pending regent approval. Renovations would cover approximately 11,500 square feet of space in the John Colleton Pavilion and provide additional burn inpatient rooms and outpatient clinic. Existing rooms would receive aesthetic updates. Funding would be pulled from the University Hospital's building usage funds for the project. Construction is set to span roughly 18 months, beginning in the spring of 2024 and concluding in the fall of 2025. Clinical operations would continue during the project. The University of Northern Iowa's loan capital improvement proposal before the Regents surrounds the university's practice facility facility for its wrestling program. UNI will hire RDG Planning and Design of Iowa City, a designer responsible for designing many projects on college campuses across the country, including the University of Iowa's Campus Recreation and Wellness Center. This article, written by Ryan Hansen, who covers local government and crime for the Iowa City Press Citizen. Our next story is a pathology lab facing harassment lawsuit. The female doctors allege a $350,000 wage gap. This is written by William Moores from the Des Moines Register. Two female physicians say that they were belittled, ignored, subjected to a body workplace, underpaid by hundreds of thousands of dollars, and eventually forced to resign from a major Des Moines medical laboratory. Doctors Tiffany Millis and Caitlin Halverson are suing their former employer, that is the Iowa Pathology Associates and Regional Laboratory Consultants, for wage, sex, 
age and pregnancy discrimination, harassment, and retaliation. Their complaint was filed the week of November 5th in Polk County District Court, follows a lawsuit filed last year by the Iowa Pathology accusing them and two other former doctors of breaching their contracts and stealing employees and clients as they departed to set up a rival medical lab in Urbandale. In court filings, the doctors describe what they say were years of reports and complaints to company leaders that were ignored or brushed aside. They also allege a pattern of retaliation by executive director Scott Denker and others towards them, and even when they themselves were shareholders and part owners of that practice. Defendants excluded Dr. Millis and Dr. Halverson from ownership activities and also treated them with outright hostility and distrust, according to the complaint. The hostile work environment was exhausting, humiliating, and belittling. Iowa Pathology has yet to file a response in court. A representative declined to comment on those allegations. They're saying the defendants look forward to sharing our story when the time is right. Trouble in the medical lab. Iowa Pathology specializes in providing diagnostic lab services for other medical practices and facilities that includes major central Iowa hospitals and health networks. Millis joined the practice in 2013, followed by Halverson in 2015. Both are board-certified pathologists. In addition to their work in the lab, both have held a variety of roles with other providers. Millis, among other roles, served as the medical director for hospitals in Lucas, Jefferson, and Van Buren counties, while Haverson has served as the medical director for the Story County Medical Center. Additional duties that brought revenue into the practice, before which the women received no additional compensation, that's according to their attorney, Paige Fielder. Both doctors were hired as associates, but after several years became shareholders in that practice. During their time as associates, according to the complaint, Halverson and Millis were both paid hundreds of thousands of dollars less than male doctors with similar or lesser qualifications. Both received a starting salary of $200,000 with annual raises to $250,000 and $300,000 in their first three years. But the two alleged that a male doctor who's hired in 2007 started at $225,000 and over his first three years earned in an excess of $350,000 more than they had despite not having the same level of certifications. Another male doctor hired in 2022, as Millis and Halverson were departing, started at a salary of $600,000, plus additional bonuses, according to the allegations. Halverson and Millis say in their suit that they were told at their hiring that the associate pay was fixed, with no room for a negotiation. They only learned in 2022 that the male, their male colleagues had been paid much more than they were. Promotion to shareholder meant that the two women were entitled to a share of the practice's profits and, in theory, a voice in the executive decision-making. This, they allege, did not happen. Millicent Halverson said in their suit that their input was routinely ignored and they were shut out of or not notified of board meetings and hiring decisions. Numerous requests for additional management responsibility, training, and mentorship went nowhere, according to the allegations. Male colleagues, including Denker and Dr. Jacob Schreck, both of whom are named as defendants, routinely referred to the two female doctors as, quote, girls, told them to let people who know what they're doing, and in one case, refused to appoint Millis to a medical director position, saying, quote, it would be better for a man to do it, according to the women's allegation. 
after they complained about these and other incidents. The plaintiff says that their complaint, their male colleagues responded with a mixture of hostility and avoiding them like the plague. The plaintiffs in the suit describe being subjected to a variety of sexual situations at Iowa Pathology, ranging from flirting by their decades-older executive director to raunchy jokes about female newscasters to male colleagues who watch pornography on work computers. One work area of Iowa Pathology was decorated with a large photograph of a bare-breasted young woman. That's according to the complaint. The plaintiffs were told that the model was the daughter of one of the shareholders. Both women also alleged they faced workplace discrimination in a variety of ways during and after their pregnancies with their first children. After giving birth, Halverson alleges male colleagues repeatedly intruded on her on her while she was pumping breast milk in the office. In 2022, Halverson and Millis partnered with two other shareholders to start a new competing practice called Go Finch Laboratories. In their complaint, they described their decision to leave Iowa Pathology as due to pervasive harassment, discrimination, and retaliation. In December of 2022, Iowa Pathology sued the departing shareholders, accusing them of breaching their contracts and wrongly soliciting the practice's clients and employees to join Goldfish. A judge granted an injunction preventing them from promoting Goldfish until February of 2023. The Goldfish partners have filed counterclaims, and this case remains pending. In their new complaint, Millicent Halverson describes the lawsuit against them and their partners as an intimidation tactic meant to pressure them not to pursue their civil rights claims against Iowa Pathology. Attorney Maggie Hansen, who represents the Goldfinch partners in the 2022 lawsuit, said in an email that IPA's claims lack of lack any legal basis. Goldfinch will continue to provide excellent diagnostic services to our patients and clients. In an emailed statement, Iowa Pathology's Tremec also linked the two cases, pointing out that the Halverson and Millis filed their Iowa Civil Rights Commission complaint just days after the court's temporary injunction. He said, as this civil rights lawsuit matter is related to another ongoing business litigation with the same former partners, it would be inappropriate for us to provide any further details. But we look forward to sharing our story when the time is right. Fielder says that her clients were motivated by years of mistreatment that they experienced. She said in an email, "Dr. Halverson and Dr. Millis never wanted any of this to happen. They hoped that by coming forward with their experience, it may prevent this from happening to other Iowa women in the future." And then two short articles uh, to complete the Metro and Iowa section today. Let DMAC culinary students make your Thanksgiving dinner rolls. This is by F. Amanda Tugadi. Thanksgiving dinner isn't complete without warm, freshly baked dinner rolls, and the Des Moines area community college culinary students are here to help. Students from the college's Iowa Culinary Institute Bakery and Arts Program are selling dinner rolls by the dozen in November, leading up to the holiday week. The sale is part of an annual fundraiser, which seeks to cover the traveling costs for students attending the American Culinary Federation National Convention. The 2024 convention will take place in July at the Phoenix Convention Center in Phoenix, Arizona. The three-day event offers students educational resources, networking opportunities with professional chefs and food service leaders. Seminars and competitions to show off their skills. 
Students last year set a record for total orders and prepped 3,156 individual dinner rolls, or 263 dozen, and hope to raise the bar even higher this holiday season. Here's how you can place your order Orders can be made online. At bit.ly/slash ICI Fundraiser 23. Students will be accepting orders until noon on November 20th. A dozen dinner rolls cost $6, and customers have the choice of white or whole wheat bread. Each order will be packaged in a foil pan, making it easier for customers to heat up the rolls before serving. Customers can pick up their orders between 10 a.m. and noon, November 22nd, at the following locations Building 1 at the DMAC Newton campus on 2nd Avenue in Newton, and Building 1 at the DMAC Urban campus on 7th Street in Des Moines. Customers will be asked to select their preferred pickup location when placing an order. And this from the town of Alleman. Alleman will have runoff election for mayor. Altoona will have one for city council. This is by Chris Higgins of the Register. Two Polk County cities will have runoff elections in November. Iowa cities and school districts held elections for mayor, city council, and school board on November 7th. Some cities have set up their elections to have a second round if candidates don't reach a certain amount of votes to outright win. Runoff elections in Alleman and Altoona will be December 5th. Alleman will have a runoff election in the mayor's race. There were three candidates in the race incumbent Bob Crammy and challengers Tyler Perry and Bill Stevens Jr. In the first round, Crammy Received 40% of the vote. Perry had 32%, and Stevens had 28%. No candidate received a majority of the vote, so Cramey and Perry will be on the ballot in the December 5th runoff election. Altoona will have a runoff election for an at large seat on the city council. Five candidates ran for two seats on the council. They were Julie Stewart, Jerry Evans, Incumbent Vernon Wiley II, Chad Radishak, and Jenny Cadell. There is a formula under state law based on the number of votes in open seats to find how many votes a candidate needs to win an at large election with multiple candidates and avoid a runoff. In the Altoona City Council election, candidates needed 1,189 votes to win outright. Stewart received 1,626 votes, votes, or 34%, which was enough to automatically win a seat in the first round. Evans and Willie had the next highest number of votes, but not enough to avoid a runoff. Evans received 1,096 votes, or 23%. Willie received 859 votes, or 18%. They will be on the ballot. In the December 5th runoff. Again, this by Chris Higgins, who covers the eastern suburbs for the Register. 
to world news this morning. This is in the main section of the Des Moines Register. Netanyahu rejects U.S. vision for Gaza. He says the deal and release of hostages could be near. This is written by John Bacon from USA Today. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said on Sunday that a hostage deal with Hamas could be near, but declined to talk about details to avoid derailing the delicate negotiations to free those that's taken during the Hamas October 7th attack. Netanyahu told NBC News' Meet the Press, I think the less I say about it, the more I'll increase the chances, chances that it materializes. Netanyahu credited Israel's military pressure for getting Hamas to talk about this release. He said that's one thing that might create a deal. We will talk about it when it's there. We'll announce it if it's achievable. Israel's foreign ministry revised the death toll in the war from 1,400 to 1,200 people. More than 11,000 Palestinians have been killed since Hamas attacked Israeli communities last month. That is according to the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry. However, U.S. Assistant Secretary of State Barbara Leaf told a House panel on Thursday that it's, quote, very possible the number of Palestinian deaths in Gaza is higher than the ministry's most recent numbers. Talks of a hostage deal were drawing extensive and sometimes contradictory buzz. A Biden administration official confirmed a possible deal involving the release of about 80 women and children in exchange for the release of Palestinian women and teenagers that's held by Israel. The official, which NBC did not name, acknowledged there is no certainty that any deal will come to fruition. But Reuters reported that Hamas decided on Sunday to suspend hostage negotiations because of Israel's assault on an al-Shifa hospital. That's according to a Palestinian official that's briefed on this hostage talks, told the news service. In Gaza City, the area around al-Shifa was slammed by heavy shelling. Palestinian officials say thousands of civilians have taken refuge there, but Israeli officials accuse Hamas of concealing a command post in the hospital compound. The Israel military says it attempted to del- deliver 80 gallons of fuel to the hospital, but that Hamas prevented the medical center from receiving it. Israeli officials have repeatedly accused Hamas of siphoning fuel from hospitals, storing weapons and militants inside and beneath them, and doing the same at schools and mosques. The militant group denies this and says that Israel is using these accusations as a pretext to justify its airstrikes. Israel's military also said there was a safe corridor for civilians to evacuate from Shifa and southern Gaza, but many Palestinians said they were afraid to go outside. An Israeli government spokesperson says international aid agencies in Gaza have actively put Palestinian civilians' lives at risk by failing to support Israel's orders to evacuate northern Gaza. Elon Levy says the International Red Cross, the World Health Organization, and the United Nations are among the agencies that for weeks refused to support or encourage evacuations ordered by Israel ahead of and in the early days of the Israeli ground assaults in Gaza. Levy wrote on social media, now they're endangering everyone by requiring a hasty evacuation in the middle of ground urban warfare. He said Hamas is responsible for the deaths of thousands of civilians, but that the agencies need to take a long, hard look in the mirror about their complicity with Hamas's human shield strategy. 
Elsewhere in Gaza, at least 45% of the housing have been damaged or destroyed by Israeli bombardment. That's according to the United Nations, which said the territory's gross domestic product has shrunk by 4% in the first month of the war and would decline by 8.4%. That is equivalent to $1.7 billion if this conflict extends beyond a second month. About a dozen children with cancer or other blood disorders, along with their guardians, have been evacuated from Gaza for treatment in Egypt or Turkey. The WHO announced on Friday additional children are expected to be evacuated. This move that's planned by the organization and St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in coordination with Egyptian, Israeli, Jordanian, U.S. and Palestinian officials. Netanyahu has firmly rejected the Biden administration's vision for post-war Gaza, saying the Palestinian Authority that now administers the West Bank will not assume the governance over the war-battered enclave. Israel will retain overall security control and retain the right to attack any terrorists who may pop up again. Netanyahu said that on Saturday, and Israel has been unrelentingly pounding on Gaza since Hamas militants crashed over the border on a murderous rampage through Israeli communities on October 7th. Netanyahu vowed to not cave to global pressure to cede control of Gaza to Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. Netanyahu says there will not be a civil authority that educates its children to hate Israel, to kill Israelis, to eliminate the state of Israel. He also said there cannot be an authority whose leader still has not condemned the terrible massacre 30 days later. Meanwhile, Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie, visiting Israeli communities shattered by militant attacks last month, said that he supported Israel's rejection of a ceasefire in Gaza. Israelis can't be asked to stand down in the face of a violent threat against the people from Hamas, he said. And also in the Nation and World section of the front section of the Register, Roller Coaster Week for Trump and the GOP. Electoral defeats, debate, leave much up in the air. This is by David Jackson of USA Today. From Miami, Donald Trump and his Republican challengers stumped South Florida during an up-and-down week for their party, a prelude to what will likely be a volatile campaign year in 2024. Trump and the Republicans began last week with good poll numbers, then suffered big election losses on Tuesday. A day later, Trump skipped another debate with opponents, an angry event in which the candidates described each other as scum and losers. Many Republicans are confident they can topple Democratic President Joe Biden and take back the Senate in 2024, but they also know their internal turmoil could sink their chances. There's so much up in the air, pollster Frank Luntz said after watching the GOP candidates debate in downtown Miami without Trump. Most of the friction is over Trump, who countered the Republican candidates with a rally in Hialeah, Florida. He again denounced anyone who challenges him as a rhino, Republican in name only, and declared the other candidates should simply drop out. During their debate, GOP challengers suggested Trump and his movements are among the reasons Republicans lost in many of the off-year elections this week. The Republican reversals included a gubernatorial race in Kentucky and an abortion rights referendum in Ohio. Other candidates said the results revealed the perils of a Trump-led party that lost elections in 2018, 20, and 22 
and maybe 24 unless something changes, a point made by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. When Trump first ran for president in 2016, Republicans were going to get tired of winning, DeSantis said during the debate. Well, I'm sick of Republicans losing. Vivek Ramaswamy put it in more pungently. We've become a party of losers. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who has described Trump as a figure of the past, said Republicans need a new way to discuss issues ranging from abortion to the Middle East to the federal debt. I think he was the right president at the right time, Haley said during the debate. I don't think he's the right president now. Asked during the debate why he would be a better candidate than Trump, Senator Tim Scott said, we need a president and a candidate who will actually help our base solidify and attract independent voters into our party. Trump's challengers also are fighting one another, sowing divisions that could further benefit Trump. The most publicized moment of the debate came when Ramaswamy noted that Haley's daughter has used TikTok, a subject of spying allegations against China. Leave my daughter out of your voice, Haley told Ramaswamy. She added, you're just scum. Haley and DeSantis vying to become the main alternative to Trump are also not getting along these days. Rivals have questioned whether Trump can win a general election against Biden given his legal problems, but that argument took a hit last week amid new polling. An Emerson College poll released Thursday shows Trump leading Biden in five of the six states that will probably determine the winner of the Electoral College, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Wisconsin. Biden leads in the sixth state, which is Michigan. A recent New York Times and Siena College poll showed Trump leading Biden in Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Haley and DeSantis quickly pointed out that polls also showed them leading Biden in many of those same swing states. Biden and Trump each commanded 37% of the vote in a USA Today Suffolk University poll released in October. But independent candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. cost Trump what would have been a narrow lead in the survey. Trump faces federal charges in Washington, D.C. and state charges in Georgia over efforts to steal the 2020 election from Biden. He has also been indicted over alleged hush money payments in New York and mishandling of classified documents in Florida. And there are also civil lawsuits. The Republicans' up-and-down week included testimony by Trump in a civil trial to determine damages for bank fraud. The former president delivered fiery comments in the Manhattan courtroom, arguing against a corporate death penalty for his real estate company. At one point, Trump lashed out at the judge in the case, saying, he called me a fraud and he didn't know anything about me. January 15th, the same day as the Iowa caucuses, is the scheduled start of a defamation trial brought by E. Jean Carroll, the writer who won a $5 million judgment against Trump earlier over an alleged sexual assault in the 90s. In a post-debate interview on MSNBC, candidate and former New, Go New Jersey Governor Chris Christie predicted that Trump, quote, is going to be convicted, end quote, in some of these cases, and many voters will turn on him. He is unfit to be president of the United States, Christie said. Our standards have to be higher than having a liar in the Oval Office, a criminal in the Oval Office. 
Pollster Kellyanne Conway, a former White House aide to Trump, said the Republican Party is going through some growing pains in an attempt to diversify itself. Standing outside the Miami concert hall where the GOP debate was held, Conway noted that Democrats also have their share of problems, including internal disputes over Israel and Middle East policy and criticism of Biden's leadership. Republicans will be fine, she predicted, especially if they follow through on plans to improve voter turnout, a key to Biden's victory in 2020.